standing this morning as I read from God's Word, the book of Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we enter into that section that is the letters written to the seven churches in Asia Minor by John recording the words of Christ himself who stands, walks, and speaks to the churches. Beginning in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Therefore, or remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Thus far, the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Oh Lord, we come to you this morning, we ask that as we go through these letters of the book of Revelation, we would find ourselves rightly instructed, and if there be any wayward, sinful thought or word or deed in us, that we might, hearing the voice of Christ himself, repent and do as we are told. And that by your spirit, you would compel us, motivate us to seek lives of righteousness, for there is no sweeter life than the life that is lived conforming to the pattern of the righteousness we see laid down for us in Scripture. And so grant to us, O Lord, teachable hearts. Each and every one of us, warm us if we are cold, and cause by your Spirit that little flame within us to be fanned into a burning, roaring fire of spiritual affection for you and for one another and for this world around us, we pray in your holy and precious name. Amen. So we enter into this section that ought to be familiar to us. Uh, It is easy to lean upon the work that was done even this summer when we uh, did a summer family night series on the seven letters to the seven churches on the seven nights that we got together for fellowship and teaching. So I'm going to lean on some of that, and I would ask that you call to mind those things. But if you're anything like me, even if you've just heard the thing, As you go through the scriptures again, you learn something new. And it's one thing to have a class on the scriptures. 
it's another thing to hear the preaching of the word. There is a different objective. One of the objectives, of course, is to learn what the Bible says. But the primary objective in preaching is to turn what is often called the third person. We, as we're approaching the word together, to the you. You need to hear what the Bible has to say to you. Now, I don't want to be a bully in the pulpit. And I know I can get loud, but I need you to understand um, that I always have the, tur- the gain turned up a lot. That's just how I live. Um, you'll notice that we have a microphone for recording purposes, but we don't have a microphone for amplification purposes. There's a reason for that. Uh, there's a reason we took out the intercom system in our house when we moved into our house. We don't need it. <laughs> I see one of my daughters going, yeah, uh-huh. She understands. These things are... They're worthy to get excited about. Christ himself has something to say for us this morning. And the call to Christ needs to be heard and obeyed, and it needs to be understood as essential if we are to walk in a way that is in keeping with his will for our lives. And when I speak of Christ's will for our lives, I don't mean should you buy the Chevy or the Ford. I don't care. I mean, what does his word have to say in walking in a way that is in keeping with righteousness? And the way that we often evaluate our spiritual lives is this. Anything that is a passing grade or better, we're good. We grade even ourselves oftentimes in a way that is more compassionate than we even grade others. We'll say, well, I'm doing these things right. Surely Christ must, must be impressed with my progress in the heavenly pursuit. Well, we find such a people this morning. The church in Ephesus is a church that has mobilized to taking to social media all the unorthodox expressions of the Christian church and never is one thing left unchallenged. Do you know these people? These are the people who live to wake up every morning and they find in themselves warmth in their hatred for wickedness. In their attack against bad doctrine, in their suffering for righteousness, and their persevering in a hope of the things that is to come or that are to come. And yet, even here in this church, there is something lacking. Now, the reason why this letter is for us is because it is a letter not only for the church in Ephesus, not only the other seven churches, as these letters were circulated, all seven to each of the seven, and each of those churches were hearing, ooh, Christ has something to say to Ephesus. But it isn't just what does he have to say to Ephesus? What does he have to say to us this morning? And what he has to say is this. It is absolutely possible to be admired as an orthodox Christian and to be no Christian at all. You don't get points for scoring zingers against the apostates. That is not how it works. And so what does Christ have to say? Lies at the very center and heart of all saving faith. 
It is love itself. So let's look at this text this morning. I've got three headings that I want to move through. The first, many good things to say. The second, one thing against them. And then thirdly, the call to change. First, many good things to say. Second, one thing against them. And then thirdly, the call to change. Now, Christ has many good things to say. Not only do we have sort of a pattern for how we ought to compliment and provide constructive criticism, that's not what Christ is really teaching. But he is sincerely pointing out things the church in Ephesus did well. Now, the church in Ephesus was planted by Paul. And they had many years of faithfulness to the Lord. We read about the church in the book of Ephesians. But something was going astray. In the years between when they were planted, pastored by Paul, and now as John is writing. We'll get to that in a moment. But what they were doing well, we see in verse 1, to the angel of the church, I'm sorry, verse 2, but let's look at the preface, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, excuse me, I'm losing my voice this morning, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the lampstands. Now this is Christ speaking through his messenger, the pastor. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Well, they worked and labored faithfully. Now, there are many Christians who don't even do this. They just don't work hard. They're called to membership in the church, and whenever there's something happening, you'll never find them there. Now, this isn't speaking to work days, right? I don't mean necessarily cleaning the churches. But all kingdom work is kingdom work. And whether it is cleaning the toilets or it is going out knocking on doors or whether it is standing in the pulpit and proclaiming the gospel, this all falls under work and toil. Some of you may not like that word toil. If you don't like the word toil, it's because you've not done enough work in the church so that it feels like toil. At some point, it will feel like toil, which also goes back to the criticism that we'll hear in just a moment. They are laboring, and they are faithful in their labors. They work hard. And not only do they work hard, but they are patient in their labors. Parents, have you ever had that occasion to work alongside your children, and you're working, and you're working, and you're working hard, you're showing them a picture of what it means to work hard, and there you are working, and then when you're done with one particular thing, you turn around, and they're gone. Where did they go? And you got to go hunt them down. Where did they go? They haven't learned to work hard. They get distracted easily. Or maybe you're working hard, and every thing that pushes against that work. Maybe you're digging a ditch and there's a massive root or rock in the way and you hear, oh man, oh man, over and over. This is not the church in Ephesus. They worked hard with patient endurance. They clocked in early, they clocked out late. And for this, we ought to look at the church in Ephesus and say, that ought to describe our church. Our congregation ought to be known as a hardworking church. But not only a hardworking church, but a church that is orthodox. We have it in our name. It's on our sign. So we must be orthodox, right? I really wanted to make sure I didn't spell orthodoxy wrong on our sign. Wouldn't that be kind of funny? 
<laughs> we are orthodox. We are the OPC, after all. So that means we must be orthodox. Well, I guess it depends. This church loved good theology. They had a library. They had a bookstore where you can go buy books. And you can go in there and you can read those books and you can learn what it means to be a good Christian. You can learn the finer things of theology proper so that when someone talks about the eternal subordination of the Son, you can say, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. Even though you may not even define what that is, you can be passionate in your opposition to those who hold to it. I'm talking about Twitter theologians. If the church in Ephesus, which it can't exist, right? This could be any church. They have a very active assault program on any doctrine that is wayward of orthodoxy. And there's some good to that. Bad theology needs to be corrected by the faithful holding to and preaching of the word of God. They could not stand it such that they were the church where they could not abide bad preaching. Now, when I say bad preaching, I don't mean artfulness. I mean bad theology, false teachers. This is the church of Paul, which Paul would obviously have a hard time. But he was the planting pastor of this church. They were orthodox in their hatred for unorthodoxy. We read that in verse 6, right? You hate the work of the Nicolaitans. Now, we don't really know who the Nicolaitans were, except that Christ hated them. Why did he hate them? Because they hated him. They did not hold to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Not much else is known about the Nicolaitans, except Christ commends the church in Ephesus for their hatred of their doctrine. It is okay to despise ungodliness. It is okay to despise bad doctrine. It is okay to write books, to make posts against those things that are out of alignment with the holy word of God. Christ is complimenting. He is encouraging. He is commending them for their hatred. And not only that, but they were tenacious even under persecution. They suffered well. They had the right kind of orneriness. Nobody was going to tell them what to do. Who does this sound like? This sounds like, in my mind, the typical American Christian that gets up in arms about all manner of things, but when you ask him what the Ten Commandments say, they couldn't tell you in order. It's a lot of heat. And there is a lot of light. In fact, what we find in the church in Ephesus is very much a typical church somewhere in the middle age of its existence. It began with passion, affection, an idealistic pursuit of the kingdom. This is, we're going to charge hell with a water pistol. 
But what is resulted in is, have you heard of the cage stage of Calvinism? Are you all familiar with that phrase? The cage stage of Calvinism is the kind of Christian that gets a little bit of Calvin and just enough of the Reformed faith or any really new theological idea, and it transforms them in such a way that all they want to do is pick fights with people they disagree with, or that rather disagree with them. And oftentimes what happens, especially among Calvinists and Reformed Orthodox Presbyterians, is they are the hammer and everything is a nail. Hulk smash (laughs) becomes their sort of ministerial de facto position. And so when you meet someone who's visiting the church, you think, I wonder what their doctrine's like. Ooh, he said something about, ooh, should I say something now about that bad theological idea? Or should I wait to the second time they visit? Maybe I should hand them a bunch of books on how they need to, do you understand where I'm coming from? Some of that reflex is good. Because our desire is that we might all be aligned together with what the Bible teaches They had the right kind of courage, the right kind of stubbornness, the right kind of theology. But guess what? Have you ever gotten one of those chocolate bunnies? And it comes in the box. And you know, even before you open it or bite into it, it's so lightweight. That stinking chocolate bunny is hollow inside. I remember getting a one-pound Hershey. Remember the big Hershey Kisses? I'm amazed they don't still make them. Maybe they do. Oh, they do? Okay. And as a kid, I had this thing, and I was just going, gnawing like a, a beaver building a dam, trying to bite off sections of this. I'm amazed my mother let me do that. But then you get the chocolate bunny. And you take a bite and it just crumbles because there's nothing at the center of it. It looks good, but it's hollow inside. Ephesus had become the chocolate bunny church. You know, it's, it, it looks like chocolate. It tastes like chocolate. But it's hollow. As Christ is walking among the church in Ephesus, and now one of the things I want us to see is this. If there is anyone that is able to diagnose the problems of the church, it is Christ who walks among us. He is not some outsider who may come one time and say, you know, your church is like that. We've had that happen before. And I got very defensive because I said, You have no idea who we are, but Christ knows who we are. And does Christ have something to say to us? And he does if we have all the trappings of a true Christian, but we are lacking the one thing, the one thing that makes us solid. I have this verse 4 against you. It's the one thing that Christ has against them, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. What is lacking? Love for Christ. 
Now you may say, well, how could they do all these things if they don't love Christ? And I would say to you, how do you do them when you do not do them out of a love for Christ? It is amazing how far you can run on vinegar. It's amazing how far you can get in the Christian life, especially for covenant children, because it's the way it was always done. You don't know anything else. Why did you come to church today? I'm not accusing. I want you to ask these questions of yourself. Why are you here? (laughs) Now, I trust by God's grace that you're here because you know the glory and the benefit and the privilege and the blessing that are found in Christ's presence. Are you here because Christ is here? The answer to your question should be absolutely. To behold the face of Christ. Now, it is also right to be here to behold the face of your fellow laborers in the harvest. To long to love and fellowship. And perhaps this was something that the church in Ephesus was missing. Everybody was caring all the time. Because they saw everyone as an enemy to orthodoxy. And there was very little compassion and forgiveness. And in their fighting against and despising the works of the devil, they lost the love that they should have had for Christ Jesus. I guess they were going through the motions. Despising evil is not enough. Your love for Christ must be greater than your hatred for the world. And so you can be orthodox and cold of heart to Christ Jesus. You can be orthodox and going to hell. In fact, that's what Christ is doing here. He's saying to those in Ephesus, listen, if you're not careful, despite having all the trappings of a very vibrant congregation, what you are in fact is, is a whitewashed tomb. And so you can be a Christian outwardly, but by every, by every conceivable measure, but by lacking in your love for Christ Jesus, lacking in true saving faith. So what is your first love? That's the question. If you are called to determine for yourself, if Christ is saying to you, measure your love for me, how do we do that? Well, what is true love for Christ? It is a genuine affection that focuses upon a particular object. And that object is the saving work or Christ himself. The love of Christ. That first love in which when you were brought into the fellowship of the Godhead or you ascertained for the first time in your life, I am a sinner in need of grace. And you looked at Christ and you saw him and you saw your way out. And his affection, his work for you, his faithfulness, his compassion won you over. And you said, this is what I believe. I think of children and their sincere immaturity. And when we interview them for membership in the church, and these young children, I look at them and oftentimes they are nervous. Sometimes they have 
difficulty answering questions that we may ask. Sometimes it's the way I ask a question, very open-ended, and they're going, uh, I don't know what you want me to say. But there is a, a certain quality of sincerity. That's why they're there. Can you remember those words when you first heard them? Your sins are forgiven. Or those first words that you said, I do. And then 20 years later, would you say I do again? Are you going about family life with routine? And you know the routine I'm talking about. You wake up, you press start on the coffee maker, you get breakfast going, and you look at your family and go, what have I been doing this for? It's one thing to go through the motions. But at the heart of all of this, didn't that family begin with this reckless abandon in pursuit of a woman? What Christ is calling the Ephesians to do is to go back and to rekindle the first love. It is a pure, undefiled, unwavering affection that delights in the person of Christ Jesus or you might say the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that out of that affection for him, everything flows. But what is often easy in the Christian life is to lose the motivation and the fount of that motivation as the, is the triune God, and it becomes the objective of tearing down idols. And you forgot why you fight. You've forgotten And it is the easiest, most natural thing in the world to do is to get so busy fighting. And your rounds may be landing on target, but you've forgotten the homeland you're fighting for. And so what is the warning? If they do not rekindle their first love, they will be removed. This is the sort of a, a affection upon the language of what Christ did to Israel when they were removed from the root, as it were, the branch, and the Gentiles were grafted in. Christ is talking about apostatizing, and that's bad. It is to be rejected by Christ. Why would they be rejected? Because it would be shown that they, in fact, do not actually love and lean upon Christ for salvation. So what must we do? If first love is a pure, undefiled, unwavering, focused affection upon Christ, out of which all kingdom service and affection for others comes, and if the result is judgment, how can we change? Well, what does Christ say? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Where were they? They were in a state of grace, a state in which they understood the odiousness of their sins 
and the immeasurable glory of the saving work of Christ Jesus. They are to remember Christ's own love. At the beginning of all Christian renewal is an expression of Christ's work upon the cross for us. You will never grow in grace if you have forgotten the cross. It is impossible. They have grown cold in their spiritual affections because they have forgotten the warmth of Christ's spiritual affections for them. I mean, you know what this is like. Many of you, just in terms of human relationships, you're Twitter-pated. You all know that word, right? It's an old Disney word. <laughs> Your whole life is turned upside down. Color has come into the world. You have a reason to live. You're not on autopilot anymore. Every morning you have a reason to get up. I'm not just merely talking about emotional sweetness. Although affection for Christ brings an emotional stability and warmth. I'm talking about what Christ is talking about here to the church in Ephesus is to remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like. Remember what it was like. And what was it like that every action was an act of gratitude to the one who saved your soul from hell. And you knew it all the time. Oftentimes, one of the great difficulties in pastoral ministry is I sit down on Monday and I think, all right, well, I've got to crank out another sermon. Here we go. And the exercise of sermon writing becomes a compelled act of A, earning my salary, B, seeking to just do my job. And you may go, oh, I can't believe it. <laughs> I can't believe you would ever think of it that way. Well, have you not also? I remember an elder saying to me one time, fake it till you make it, about the act of Christian discipline. I thought, whoa, I can't believe you would say that. But his point was clear. As you endeavor to serve Christ faithfully, there will be times in which your actions seem to be not um, compelled by a warmth and love for Christ, but because you know it is the right thing to do. But it cannot stay that way, can it? It must, Christ says, be coupled with a deep and abiding affection for the one who has rescued your soul from hell. And the only way that that principle of spiritual affection will remain in your heart is if you nurture not just orthodoxy, but true Christian spiritual affection. You're not coming to church so that you can go out into the world hearing sermons on the book of Revelation and argue with your premillennial dispensational brothers, right? 
You're not here to get armed only against wickedness. You are here to get fed for your soul that you might have always burning within you a flame carrying the torch for Christ Jesus. I remember I was in college with a a friend and we got to know each other after my third year and he was one of those guys who, and this is what he said, if I could get all of the nutrition I needed from a pill instead of eating, I would swallow the pill. And I looked at him like, are you kidding me? He just didn't enjoy eating. I, 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 I couldn't understand that perspective. It was as foreign to me as... Calculus was my freshman year in college. I actually never really learned calculus. I couldn't believe it. It was an alien idea. And then I thought, how sad that must be to go through life and every meal a chore. Meals for me are not a chore. They are a vacation. They are a moment of delight In an otherwise sea of boredom, I don't eat to live. I don't necessarily live to eat, but I'm somewhere in between, and I'm closer to that side than the other. I love food. And I eat like someone who loves food. He ate like someone who just could rather be doing something else. The question for us is this. Has our faith... And the the monotony and the habit and the ritual become just something we do because, A, it's the right thing and because it's what I've always done. Or do you live to serve Christ? Rekindling something is also not a one-time thing. One of the reasons we gather in worship every Sunday morning and evening is because we need to have the fan flamed. Um, when my grandfather passed, he left me a Husqvarna chainsaw. I love a chainsaw. It's the greatest tool ever invented. Um, and not too long ago, I was out there in my woods trying to cut down some trees. And what was happening was, because the chainsaw was relatively old, though hardly used, the line between the fuel tank and the engine had become corroded. It, it's rubber, and so it got hard, and it busted. And, and, or at least it was leaking a little bit. And so I would turn on the chainsaw, and it would idle okay. But every time I would try to bring it to full throttle and really pull the trigger and actually cut down a tree, it would stall. There wasn't anything really going to the engine, and so I had to get it fixed. This is where many of us find ourselves in our Christian life. There is this incredible repository, this incredible voluminous strength This source of energy, and we are growing cold in our affection for Christ and for one another because there is this little connecting point between the repository of divine affection in our lives and what we have done in our Christian habits is we have cut the line off. 
And the church has done this in many ways. By absenting themselves from worship, by absenting themselves from the opening of their Bible and reading it, from absenting themselves in prayer, by serving one another with a heart to pleasing Christ. And so what we find oftentimes is a church that derives more pleasure in expressing theological precepts than they do in spending time with Christ Jesus. And that is an indication that something is wrong. You must repent of your lack of affection. And so what you must do is you must go back to the cross of Christ. You must see Christ in what he has done for you. You must see that he did it for your sins, and you must understand the remedy for your sinfulness is not merely theological formula. It is a man, the God-man, who died for you. And when you see that he gave himself up for you, your heart will continue or will begin to grow soft again. I go back to the Grinch in Whoville. It's easy to be a Grinch, isn't it? And that little tiny Grinch heart was warmed by what? Joy. I guess undistilled, unpolluted love. And the Who's had nothing to rejoice in, right? All their gifts were gone. But that was not what it was about, was it? It was never about the gifts. The gifts were the flower at the end of a healthy stem. In whom are you rooted? For what reason do you sing? Why do you dig at the world? Because you have a love for Christ. And then Christ puts an eschatological exclamation point, a big period at the end here. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Listen, listen, Christ says. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit is saying. If you repent, if you are warm in your affections toward me, guess what your reward is? You get to be with me for all eternity. Now there may be some of you who say, I don't want that, then you have no spiritual affection for Christ. If the idea of spending eternity for Christ is, what that doesn't excite me at all, then that is indicative of a heart that is not consumed with the glory and honor of Christ Jesus. Um, I love being with my wife. I love being with my children. But there are some times where all I want to do is be with my wife. And I never really tire of it. I really don't. Now, I don't know what that, I mean, I kind of know what that means, and I don't want to get all mushy about it, but I just don't tire of it. Whenever we've had time to go places, of course, maybe we haven't ever had enough time to go somewhere together. She'd probably maybe get tired of me. (laughs) But it's just fantastic. And we don't really have to be saying anything. We can just sort of be in each other's presence. That is, to me, something akin to what it means to have 
a robust affection for Christ Jesus. I'm not, I'm not bragging. I hope all of you have this with your spouse. And basically what it is is, oh, we don't have to do anything. Let's just be together. Now, boy, oh boy, does that sound so cliche. And I'm sure someone has written a book like that sitting on the bookshelves of Lifeway Christian Bookstore. Just being with Jesus. Something along those lines. But is that not what it is? To be in the presence of the one who made you and has given you new life? How do you rekindle that? Here it is. Do it. Be in his presence. How do you dwell in the presence of Christ? You do so by the Spirit through his word. Word, prayer, sacrament. Do it. Remember from where you have fallen. And as you do it, ask that Christ would, by his grace, give you warm affection. Because those who desire to dwell in the presence of God will dwell in the presence of God. That is the end. That is the eschatological end of those who love Christ and desire to be in his presence. And so repent of your lack of love. Seek Christ where he may be found. And you know what? What he says? Ask, seek, knock, and the door will be opened. Ask, seek, knock. Find that Christ is himself a worthy pursuit and goal and ambition. And find in his presence the real reason for fighting. Let's pray. Oh, Lord our God, we ask this morning.